This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Thank you. You may have a seat, and I invite you to open to Psalm 139 if you have a Bible with you there, Psalm 139. If you're kind of joining with us recently or you dropped in on our church, our normal meat and potatoes is to make our way through a book of the Bible. Uh, but we were doing that at, uh, in May and then right before the summer break, which turned out to be a break in two ways. I broke my ankle. It was also a break from the series in the book of Acts. Uh, uh, Instead of getting back to our book study, I've been going through standalone uh, sermons just because I've, I thought it was helpful to minister to you and myself from these various passages. So that's why we've been kind of hopping around in case you're wondering about that. And Two weeks ago, in, uh, we were in Hebrews 11, which is maybe the central point I've been seeking to make uh, about persevering by faith and, and life's hardships. Uh, there are many examples in, in Hebrews chapter 11, but we focused in on what is said about Moses where it says that he endured, you remember, as seeing him who is unseen. Moses endured what he endured by faith as if he was seeing him who is unseen or invisible. From that we derived the thought that our capacity to endure and remain in the faith, that is remain true to Christ, to have hope is directly the res- related to our ability to see God for who He is with the eyes of faith. He endured as seeing Him who is unseen. And it came to a head there, if you remember, a pinnacle in chapter 12 of Hebrews where it says that's why we are to be what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Consider Him, He says. Focus in on on him because if we want to know God what he's like we will only meet him and see him in his son Jesus is God incarnate Jesus is the word made flesh Jesus said if you know me you know the father we're one if you've seen me you've seen the father and so knowing God is essential knowing God expands our sense of gratitude, adoration, and worship, and also our sense of of faith and hope. And that's why it's been so essential. So then last week, we built upon that basic principle and said, well, what is God like? And we looked at what? We looked at the sovereignty of God, God's absolute sovereignty and goodness in ordaining all such things that come to pass for the good of his people, which is to be made in the likeness of Christ. We looked at Romans 8.28 last week, and we said this is like being on high ground. We need to find our way to high ground to get a sense of perspective in life and get our eyes off the storm and on the one who's in the boat, on Jesus. So this week, we, we just take another step in the same direction, and that is another high ground is here, David's contemplation of the attributes of God in Psalm 139. It's just very, very rich. I won't read the whole psalm at the beginning. I'll read um, 
through about half of it, and then we'll continue as we make our way through. Here's the Psalm 139. Would you stand with me, please? It's uh, one last time. Sorry, put your pens away and all that. And Psalm 139. David adds to the choir master, Psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I changed my mind. I'm finishing it. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm, I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. This is the word of God. May he bless it to your hearts and to your minds this morning. Let's have a seat. Aslan, said Lucy, you are bigger. That's because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. <laughs> but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Now, most of you, certainly not all of you, but most of you will recognize this to be from C.S. Lewis's 
Chronicles of Narnia, the Narnia series, particular Prince Caspian. And in that series, Aslan, the lion, is Christ, a figure of Christ. And what Lewis was trying to convey there is that as the Christian matures, God seems bigger. It should be that way. And we should become smaller more aware of the frailty and mortality of our lives. And and God doesn't change, but He should seem bigger and grander to us. Our view of God should expand as we grow and walk with Him throughout this life. Uh, Jeremiah says, Let him who boasts, speaking for the Lord, boast in this, that he understands me and knows me. And if God is infinite, when will we ever completely understand him and know him? But if through time, by the Spirit's grace, he opens our eyes, we will be understanding him and knowing him more and more. Aslan, you are bigger. (laughs) That's the way it should seem to us. In our journey, A.W. Tozer, in his well-known book on the attributes of God, the knowledge of the holy, said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. (laughs) Moses endured as seeing him who is unseen. God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, and God's omnipotence are the subjects of David's vision in this psalm here. And some of you haven't maybe heard those words that way. The little prefix there, Latin omni, simply means all. God's omniscience means that he's all-knowing. God's omnipresence means that he's everywhere, all the time. God's omnipotence means that he's all-powerful. And these are the subjects of David's visions as he contemplates God uh, in this beautiful psalm. But the psalm, the psalm is more than some sort of abstract theological, you know, inscription here. It's it's very, very personal. Several times there, there is this you and I. You hem me in. I, I can't get my head around this, you think. It's a very personal psalm, back and forth. David, in other words, reflects not simply on the, the, the nature of God as if he's doing some sort of study, you know, some, writing some sort of paper. It's deeply personal. It impacts his heart. It impacts his life. It impacts his outlook here. And it, and it brings him to a state a state of, of wonder and a state of, of worship. And that's, of course, my prayer for all of us this morning. Alexander McLaren, a pastor from another time, he says that David here reflects upon, and I quote him, he says, he reflects upon not mere omniscience, but a knowledge which knows him altogether. Not mere omnipresence, but a presence which he can nowhere escape. (laughs) Not mere creative power, but a power which shaped him. See how personal that is, right? 
It is this, he says, that fills and thrills the psalmist's soul. And so again, David lived as Moses lived and endured, as you and I ought to live and endure, as seeing him who is unseen with the eyes of faith. Aslan, you are bigger. Because David saw these attributes of God and personalized them, he was aware of it in this, in this special relationship he had as God's chosen king. He lived knowing that he was never unknown and he was never alone because of who God is. And that's my prayer for you, that you'll have that same deep sense of assurance and hope as we reflect on these attributes of God. Let's think about the first ones, verses 1 through 6. God is all-knowing. God is omniscient. You notice he uses these verbs. He uses these Hebrew verbs, searches, knows, discerns, and acquainted. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lie down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Searches, knows, discerns, acquainted. What David is saying is that God knows absolutely everything about him. Not only about him, but about everything, truly, all the time. David's aware, in other words, not only of God's omniscience, but of God's intimate knowledge of him. He knows everything about him. This is more than a casual interest that God has. This is more than Google following you everywhere. There's an intimacy here. There's a personal intimacy here. Let's go through those four verbs here for a few minutes. Search, the Hebrew search, that verb was used of the spies when they were sent into the promised land to do what? To explore and investigate. Now, God doesn't actually need to search anyone, right? He knows all things there are to know, real and possible, all the time, simultaneously. God's never searching, but David speaks and says, your knowledge is as if you had searched me. Your knowledge is one that has spied out and explored every little crevice of my heart, you see. God has spied out. God has explored. Not in time, because God's outside of time. But he's saying, Every bit of his heart, all the secrets of his heart, all his passions, he knows his pride, he knows his thoughts, he knows his dreams, he knows his fears. And he knows the same about you. You've searched me, he says. You know me, he says. He uses that verb, the Hebrew yada, he uses that verb seven times in this psalm. And that, that verb is used of, intimate, of, of the intimate physical relationship between a husband and a wife. In other words, he says, you know me up close. <laughs> You know me intimately. You know everything there is about me. God isn't guessing about anything or anyone. God isn't calculating about anything or anyone. God isn't trying to figure out anyone. God isn't learning anything new, ever. He knows, always, has, will. You are acquainted or excuse me, let's go to discern, where he says, you discern my thoughts. That, 
that, that's a, that verb refers to a, um, being able to distinguish, to separate, to scrutinize, like, like the difference between uh, the wheat and the chaff. And so what he's saying, you discern uh, my, my heart, my thoughts, my motives is what he's getting at here. You, you know the good and the bad. You divide them. So there's an evaluation here, not just a knowledge about, but an evaluation of those things. You are acquainted with all my ways. He's never waiting to see what's going to happen, right? That's why David says, even before there's a word on my tongue, you already know it. He's not waiting. Verse 5, he says, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand about me. What he's saying is your knowledge encircles me. It surrounds me completely, you know. There's no way I can go. You know me completely, but you notice the personal element again. Your hand is upon me, right? This is not some sort of technical knowledge, a personal knowledge. Uh, that he's aware of, and David's becoming aware of as he meditates on this. Now these are all, what are, all these verbs are, are, are in a form what's called Hebrew perfects, which means that God, God has always possessed this knowledge. Again, he's never learning. There wasn't a time when he says, I should search out David. No. He has always known all this about David, about you, about me, about all things that there are to know, or even things that are possible, right? So there is no hiding. Just sort of let this sink in for a second. Those thoughts that you thought no one knew, he has always known. He has always known all things you have ever thought, dreamed, felt. He knows all our secrets. God sees past our facade. Sometimes we wear masks, don't we, with people? We wear masks walking into place. Sometimes, for good reasons, we think we don't want to let people know what's going on. Don't want to trouble them. I just, you know, it's too, it's, it's, it's too much or what have you. Or Sometimes, not for good reasons, we want to keep things hidden. He knows. He's always known. He sees. He discerns. He scrutinizes. He's aware, right? Nothing escapes God's notice. Of course, 1 Samuel 16, 7, right? Do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature, speaking there of Saul and others. He says, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And the prophet Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, we can't even know our own hearts. But then he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. He does see everything about us. Now, I want to say this, though. There's nothing hostile about the meaning of those verbs, okay? In the meaning of those verbs themselves, okay? David is simply acknowledging that he has come to understand that God sees and perceives and has always known everything there is to know about everything, and here he's personalizing, and about him. He knew. 
when he was looking at Bathsheba with those adulterous eyes. He knew when he schemed the death of the murder of her husband. He knew. He also knew when his heart was broken when Absalom, his own son, turned against him, tried to kill him. He's always known everything about us, our secrets. He knows them. Psalm 119 says, You have placed our iniquities in the light of your presence. Like floodlights, right? I thought that was my secret. You have placed our iniquities in the light of your presence. Now, to be known like that can be uncomfortable. Especially with humans we don't trust. But there's a sense in where to be known like that by God can feel uncomfortable, right? Well, I'm glad there's some things you all don't know about me. Although I heard yesterday a whole lot of things were said about me here in the women's gathering. Secrets came out. (laughs) And you probably feel the same, don't you? There's some things you think, man, I'm glad glad he doesn't know the the whole story about me. Because he's on me all the time with the little he knows. What if he knew everything, huh? There's things we don't want everyone to know about us. But you know what? The Lord knows the absolute worst about you. There's there's nothing that he doesn't know about your sin and motives and thoughts. And he knows the absolute worst about you better than you do. And yet he set his love upon you if you're a Christian. Think about that. We may live in the fear of rejection of others if they knew the whole truth. But you should never live in the fear of rejection from him, knowing he already knows the whole truth when he brought you into his family. He always knew. Romans 5 teaches us, right, that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners. And, he, and we think, yeah, I was a sinner, but he knows the whole picture, you see. While we were yet sinners, and he had the full picture, Christ died for us. Let that sink in, you see, because one of the devil's greatest tools, even in the Christian life, is repeating your sins to you and wanting you to withdraw from God in shame. He already knew. He's always known. He will always know. And yet he died for you, you see. So, Don't question his love if you're in Christ. Now, for some of you, I think there's a sense of shame maybe because there's there's things in your past you are ashamed of. But you need to to bring it all before him, not so he'll know it, but understand he already knows it. And if you're going to be forgiven, if you're going to be forgiven, it's not because you, you keep that hidden. You're not hiding it from him. If you're going to be forgiven and experience that forgiveness, 
you need to acknowledge it to him and acknowledge that he knew it all alone and that you deserve even worse and put your faith in his son Jesus who bore your sins on the cross, you see. You need to, to go the rest of the way, not just the I feel uncomfortable. You're making me think that God knows this thing I've kept here. Listen, he's always known it and you feel uncomfortable. Let's go the rest of the way. <laughs> so, do you find today omniscience comforting or disturbing, right? David gets to the point where the all-encompassing knowledge of God fills him with wonder. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Can you say that or do you say, this really makes me worry? David, is, in a, in a, I think he's here in a state of praise. It's, it's, he's amazed that God knows everything about him and loves him yet, right? He's already been called and chosen of God. He knows that. And he says, it's, it's, it's too high. I can't attain it. <laughs> There's some praise and adoration in that. See? And so he also knows this, that he's never unknown with God. And what I mean by that is he's never misunderstood, let's say. That's one angle. You know, a lot of our relationships, they, they, we hit the rough points. Why? Because we are, w there's a degree to which it's unknown what you really mean. What did you mean by that? What, what were you saying when you said that? Well, I didn't say that. I didn't, yes, you did. I just heard it. I didn't mean that. <laughs> Oh, I thought you meant, well, what did you mean? I see you've experienced this. <laughs> our, human, our human capacity to communicate is, is obstructed by what? By the, uh, our, our, well, lots of things, but one of them is the fact that we are never truly, truly, completely known because we can't see the heart. And yet we try and judge people's motives all the time. Misunderstanding. With God, you're never misunderstood. He knows why you're tearing up. He knows why you're, why you're feeling some anger rising up in your heart. He knows why you, you feel alone, why you feel judged by that person. You're never misunderstood with him, ever. You're never unknown in some way or some capacity with him. Huh? You're fully known. And therefore, I say again, don't be like Adam and Eve and hide in shame when God presses in, right? Don't hide, don't conceal why he already knows, right? Believe the cross, believe the gospel. Believe it, believe him, trust him. Some of you, for the first time, need to do that. And for those of us who are in Christ, we need to remember that, that shame is part of a tool to keep us moving away from fellowship, from God, from intimacy. Okay, so Aslan, you're bigger. God is what? He's omniscient. <laughs> He's all-knowing. This knowledge is penetrating and complete. But that should give us hope. Now, why does God know everything? Well, on one level, I could just simply say because he's God, right? But because he's also everywhere. 
He's omnipresent all the time. Verse 7 began with a question. Where shall I go from your spirit or, or where shall I flee from your presence? I, I don't think that's a desire to escape. Uh, he just expressed he knows God knows everything about him, you see. I don't think this is a desire to escape. It's a joyful astonishment, astonishment that no matter where David may go or find himself, whether he ran or whether he just was pushed that direction, no matter where he goes, when he gets there, God is there. And God is always everywhere fully as God. All that he is, he is always everywhere, simultaneously, all the time, right? And David, again, personalizes this. He, he says that not only is, is God there wherever I go, but he's there to lead me and guide me, verse 10. Did you notice that? Even there your hand shall lead me and guide me or hold me. And so this underscores, again, the positive nature of this reflection. He's not saying, oh, I wish I could run from this all-seeing God. He's saying, wherever I go, I'll find you there, and you'll be there, verse 10, with your hand to lead me and to hold me. Not only is David never unknown, but David will never be alone when it comes to his knowledge and relationship with Yahweh, the living God. And so David imagines all the extreme possibilities, right? He, polar opposites, up, heaven, down, Sheol, the grave, the netherworld. God's there, east, where the sun rises, the wings of the dawn, west, the sea behind me, if you're standing in Palestine, where he was. East, west, up, down, wherever I go, to the extremes, you are there. You are there. There was a man who did try and run, though, a prophet and try and go to the very same sea that he's talking about. Remember his name? Jonah. And what did he find? God was in the ship. <laughs> God was in the sea. God was in the storm. God was everywhere. <laughs> God was in a whale. <laughs> a fish, right? He's everywhere. There's no escape. If that is what you're thinking, right? Do you ever think you'd... Do you think... You do things sometimes as if God wasn't there. Oh, I know you do, because I do. <laughs> he sees, and he's there. Let that sink in a little bit. He's there. He's always there. And so we live life, remember, coram del, Latin phrase, we live our life coram del before the face of God, knowing that he always sees. He's always there. Think of those little kids trying to sneak the cookies, reaching underneath there, right? He's there. <laughs> God's always everywhere. And then he says this interesting phrase here, verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. I think what David is saying here is that even if he were to be wrapped in total darkness, God's there and his penetrating gaze is there too. Because to him there's nothing dark, right? There's nothing hidden. 
And verse, verse 12 is it where he says, no, verse 11, surely, if I say to myself, surely the darkness will cover me, I, think, I, I don't think he's thinking about hiding. Uh, I, th- I think, again, what, that verb cover is the same verb used in Genesis 3.15 in that very first gospel promise where it says that, the, that the, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. It's the same verb, crush, cover, in that sense. So I don't think David's thinking so much of location as much as situation here. And what he's saying is that even if I were to find myself in a situation where it feels like the darkness of what? The darkness of Saul chasing me down from my life. The darkness of being abandoned by my own son. The darkness of facing my own sin and coming to the realization of what I did with Bathsheba. The darkness of pain. The darkness of disease. Whatever you see. Even if I find myself being surrounded, crushed as it were, covered by some circumstance. Where I, where I look at it and think, it's, it's, I, I don't know my way through it. It's, I, it's darkness to me. It's foreboding. It's overwhelming me. He says to you, it's absolutely clear. Everything's clear as day to you. You see right through it all. You know it all. You're there. And I can say your hand is still there to what? Lead me and hold me. Take me by the hand and walk me through this darkness. Some of you are facing personal darkness. You think back in this verse. You ask him, Lord, your hand is here to lead me and hold me, Scripture says. So lead me and hold me. You're my good shepherd. Walk me through this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. For thou art with me. That's the perspective Dave has here as well. He will never be alone. You know, it's easy to feel alone because there's some things we all have to personally face and even our loved ones can't go there with us. Right. As much as Bill and Deborah cared for uh, her father, Dick, loving him, you can't go the whole way with him. You can't walk through death. When I visit my dad and I talk with him, and it's, I can't go where he is because I don't, I don't know where he is. Can't get in. You know, our family, there's some people with chronic diseases, and as much as we, we will walk with them, each other, it's their darkness, you know. But he says, even there, you are always present. Your hand is upon me to lead me and to hold me. Psalm 23 ends with, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And why is that? Because the merciful shepherd is with you through it all. In Christ, this with us Emmanuel, God with us. In Christ, this experience of God's presence, His omnipresence, is very personal and also 
experiential. What I mean is this. There, there are times when it's so difficult, so painful, we want to say, we, maybe we don't dare say it out loud, but we're thinking it. Not only are we asking, why is this happening, but we get all the way to the, how could he know? Has he, ha, have you ever been in this situation? You know, have you walked in these shoes? But God is not so distant because in his omnipresence, he entered your experience. In the incarnation, in the incarnation, the Son of God brought the, the essential nature of God, divine nature, deity, he brought it into human existence and human experience, right? Think about that. He felt what the soil feels like under his toes. He felt what the breeze feels like to a human face. He felt what thirst feels like to a parched mouth he felt what loneliness was like rejection was like and no it's true he has not in every single circumstance experienced things you experience you know they're just you know in terms of the particulars the actual moments because those weren't ordained for them and for him and neither did he live in our time so no not exact circumstances but we are talking about the category of what human suffering, human human emotion, and especially temptation to not trust the Father. Hebrews 2.17 says, well, beginning of verse 16 says that that Christ the Son was not sent to, to help angels. It says, He helps the offspring of Abraham, which is who? Us, Christians. He, he helps, present tense. He came and he, and he still exists and he helps the offspring of Abraham and therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, incarnation, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to absorb the wrath of God for our, on our behalf. For because he himself has suffered when tempted think garden of gethsemane think 40 days in the wilderness since he himself has suffered when tempted he's able to help those who are being tempted that's what that's what christ our savior is like beloved so you take him your doubts you take to him your tears you take to him your situation and know this, he, he may not have ever been in those exact same moments, but he was tempted beyond you. Why? Because he could resist much longer than you ever have and then never sin. He knows the pressure of satanic oppression. Author Hebrews goes on in chapter 4. He says, we, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Oh, God is so distant. He's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. How, how, could he sim- how could he care about us? He was incarnate, and he remains the God-man. So God is everywhere, not only geographically. He's everywhere experientially in that sense, if you follow me. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Praise God. 
But you are never unknown and you are never alone with Christ. In Christ, we have fellowship with Emmanuel, God with us. That's a glorious thought. Now God sees all because he's everywhere present. And God sees all because he's also all-powerful. He's able to decree everything that is to come and therefore sees and knows everything that's going to occur. Looking at verses 13 through 18 now. Verses 13 through 18. The darkness is as light with you, he had just said. And where is it totally dark that you and I would never be able to see? And it's, a, and it's the womb of a, of a woman. Especially speaking from, the, <laughs> you know, from his century's point of view. Don't bring up x-rays and all that stuff. Okay. What is he saying? <laughs> He's saying, natural human life, there's a whole lot of mystery where in the womb. How does how does that happen? <laughs> right? That's what David's saying. He goes, how could that be? It's amazing. And even with all our knowledge now, it's still amazing. If you've never been there at present at a birth, it's just, ah. And so David says, I say that darkness is as light with you for or because you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. In other words, he was there in the womb. He says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. That's how it appears to him, right? Still to a great degree to us. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was not not one of them. So let's reflect on this. God's omnipotence. God sees all things because he made all things. He's the creator God. And David ascribes the formation of the embryo in, in the womb to the creative power of God, right? You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. You saw my unformed substance. You, you, you. He's not denying human agency in here. It's going back to last week, remember? That in every action, there's a human action and there's a divine action, a divine will. Concurrence, they, they're happening simultaneously. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Well, he's not denying that his parents conceived them, but he's saying it was all part of God's handiwork. You see, God was there. God had designed all that. And God's the creator God. I think he's talking here not then as a God who was like a the watchmaker, right? Made the watch and standing back and letting it go. But God exerts his power constantly. How do we know that? He sustains all things by the word of his power, says Scripture. He's, right now, his power is emanating. He's at work. It's why your cells do what they do in your body. It's why the planets do what they do. It's why the sun does what it does and what the earth does what it does. It's because he is sustaining all things by the word of his power. Imagine that. So David is seeing that. He's coming to understand that. And he says, well, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, there is an alternate translation of that. 
And that is, you are fearful, you are wonderful. But I think the traditional translation, which finds itself in most English translations, is correct. He's talking about, again, how he has been knitted together, and he says, I, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The, word, the, verb wonder, or the word wonderful is, it means to be distinct or marked out. So David has his eyes on two things. What? Generally, he has his eyes on the reality that, that, that human beings are amazing, and that is the work of a powerful God. But he goes beyond generalities. He's not only speaking of human life in general, but his human life. There's a, there is purpose. Let me say this tenderly. There is, there is purpose in why you are made the way you're made. And why you are the way you are. Not discounting human agency, your parents. Not discounting the fact that we live in a fallen world disease. But nevertheless, we must never discount God's creative power and purposes. You are distinct. You were made with great intentionality. You are the product of God's creative power and design to fit into the all things that come together for your good. Again, that's, Aslan's getting bigger. He's amazing. He's amazing. And then David says, not only is God the creator of my life, right? He is the ordainer of my life. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. And we looked at that last week, so I won't expound on that very much. But let me just say this. You were created purposefully, and every day of your life was created with purpose. We'll never get the answer to the short-term whys, which is the whys we really want, right? But we are given the answer to the big picture why, why, that he may bring many sons to glory, that you may be shaped into the image of his son. The big picture why. Now think about the omnipotence for a second here. How useless would it be if God could see all, know all, plan all, but not quite pull it all off? That's not good. It'd be useless, right? If he could not execute his will, what good is it to have a plan? God's power is his strength and ability to bring about everything he has designed. That's one way to look at his power. Not just like, but what is God's power? God's power is his strength and ability to bring about everything he has ever designed. Everything. Here again, a verse we heard last week from Isaiah chapter 46 Isaiah 46, 9 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. What do you like, God? Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things not yet done. How is it you could declare what's going to happen from the very beginning? He says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. Wow. That's awesome power. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, he says, and I will do it. I have purposed and I will do it. Scripture says, Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. It doesn't say he, he thinks about what pleases him. Like you and I, huh? We think about what would please us. We don't have the energy, authority, and power to bring it all about. But he does what he pleases. Or an alternate translation, what he pleases, which is what he's decreed, what he's planned, he does. He does. It's a matter of living by faith again, seeing God for who he is. There was a Puritan, Stephen Charnock, who wrote a well-known, long-standing book on the attributes of God, big, fat old thing called The Existence and Attributes of God. And he says, how vain would be the eternal counsels, that's God's decrees, his plans, how vain would be the eternal counsels if power did not step, to exec- step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity. Without power, uh, his promises would be an empty sound. His threatenings, a mere scarecrow. But God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature. I have purposed, I'll bring it to pass. And where has God demonstrated his glorious power? Creation, right? Your creation, you but he has demonstrated his glorious power and demonstrated that his mercy, his, his mercy is not some sort of feeble pity when he crucified his own son, when he, the second person of the Godhead, the infinite eternal son of God, added humanity to himself, went to the cross, endured that laser beam of wrath that you and I deserve. And then he exerted his creative power by raising him from the dead three days later. There's the power of God. He promised it. He did it. His mercy is not some feeble pity, but his mercy had the power to carry out what? The payment, the atonement for sin, overcoming sin, overcoming death, and then overcoming sin and death in you when he exerted his power in your heart if you're a Christian because though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made you alive together with him. See, that's, that's the exertion of God's mighty power. Well, we dream of other things, Right? God's power exerted on our behalf to make life work smoother. I'm telling you that he's already exerted massive power you and I can't imagine in raising you and me from the dead. Taking us from spiritual blindness to faith in Christ. And he will continue to exert his power when he comes. 
This is all the object of our faith, beloved. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? <laughs> will anybody still be believing? They'll have to then. Why? Because, because he's almighty, that means his threatenings are not a mere scarecrow. But he will bring judgment. So see God as all-powerful, beloved. When we have a high view of God like this, which is what we should have in, 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 in every church, there should be, it should be God-centered, Trinitarian, Christ-exalting, high view of God, gathering of people. Not man-centered, man-exalting. Because the bigger Aslan gets through the eyes of your faith, the more you'll endure. The, you'll continue to walk in this world knowing that you are never unknown, not one second, never alone with God. I hope you see him in that way. Now, David responds, and we're just going to go ahead and dive into that last part, which sounds dissonant, doesn't it? I mean, at this point, you're amazed with David, right? We should be. Look at verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Then it seems very dissonant. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Let's, fit, let's look at that first part, verse 17 there. Let's take a few moments there. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I could count them, they are more more than the sand. You know, I think what's going on is that what's going on here is not just that David's saying, it's amazing that you know everything. There's other translations of this. These are thoughts about me. Not just, not precious to me, but how precious are your thoughts regarding me, oh God, you see. And the word thoughts means your your purposes. How precious are your purposes, your plans about me, O oh God. In other words, he's not just amazed that God knows everything about him, but that God's thoughts involve purposes, involve plans for him. Every day was written before he ever lived one single one. And David, like every biblical author, is aware of where he specifically fits in the great purposes and plans of God. David knows that God called him and chose him from, uh, from shepherding little sheep and put him in charge of his people. David knows and he's aware that God promised him, that he has plans for him, that there would be a distant male seed of his who would literally be the son of God. He didn't know what all that means, but he knows that that's what God told him. How vast are your, your promises to me? David knows that God has planned and promised to him that he would have a distant seed that would build a house for God, that he would have a distant seed who would be a king who would rule over the kingdom forever, an eternal kingdom. How precious are your plans and purposes for me, O oh God, you see. And I'm here to tell you today, which you should already know, that God fulfilled a great number of those plans and purposes through David's distant seed, who was the, the Lord Jesus Christ. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. 
But Hebrews 11 taught us that David died not having received the promise. Because God has better things in store for us. That they wouldn't get there without us getting there and crossing the finish line at the same time. See? So David, he's just amazed. Again, not just about this fact, God knows everything, but God knows everything about me and has purposed them. And he's written every one of these days that he's promised me. I don't know how it's all going to come about. I think this line about when I awake, you're still there, it's hard to say. Some people say, less the sleep of death. In other words, he's saying, even though I die, I'll wake up and you'll still be there. Nothing will have changed. Or it may be that David ruminates on these thoughts. You know, he, he writes in the Psalms that he ruminates, he thinks, he lays in his bed at night. Wouldn't you if God told you all that stuff? And yet your life is a mess. You're running around. You blew it. You commit adultery. You kill somebody. And God's promises still stand. You hear that? And then people are chasing you. Wouldn't you, be, wouldn't you lay down uh, awake at night and think, wow, how could this be? How's it going to happen? I think David lulls, just goes to sleep and he wakes up and he says, you're still there. The plan is still on. <laughs> I don't know. I'm amazed, God. Then comes the transition, and it really is a natural transition in the sense that David, in two ways, David, when he says, huh, when he says, verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. David is thinking again in light of the promises, in light of the kingdom, in light of what is coming, in light of what God has said, and he wants, like everyone else, he wants it to happen. <laughs> He wants it to come about. Oh, that the end would just simply come. I don't think these are necessarily personal uh, the vindictiveness that's filling David's heart, and we ought to look at it that way. On one level, being a forerunner of the great king who is going to bring judgment, he's maybe prefiguring that. But I think on a lo another level, what it is is he, the closer he gets to God, the more he sees his, his glory, he desires two things. He desires to, uh, to resolve to live consecrated from the wicked and consecrated from his heart. Well, let's talk about the first one, consecrated from the wicked. Why does he pray this way? Because he was a king of a theocratic nation in a covenant with God at a different time when God was working through different ways in regards to his enemies. We don't pray like David prays like that. Everything that's happened in the last two years, I hope you're not praying like this. Because how do we pray on this side of the cross? We pray like Jesus taught us to pray. Like Jesus prayed when he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. When he said, love your enemy. When, he, when Paul, when he said through Paul, overcome evil with good. I know the world frustrates you. I know politics frustrates you. I know politics drives some of you mad. You're getting wacko, some of you. And sometimes, you, if you're not careful, you sound like David in verses 19 through 22. But we are, as Paul says, we're like little lights in the dark world, right? Philippians. We're like Peter, he says, when he says that we are to be careful how we walk in the presence of unbelievers, right? Because you are a holy nation. That they may glorify God on the day of visitation. So David, speaking in a different time, a different context, says it that way. We should desire to live consecrated from the wicked, but live among them as lights and salt. 
And then he desires consecration of his own heart. From the, from he, he's, he knows God already knows everything that's in there. So when he says, he returns to that verb, search me, O God. We already know God doesn't need to search. But David needs to know what's in there. He says, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Test me. In other words, put me to a test so I can see what's going on in my heart. Know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. Right. And so he wants God to put the spotlight that's always on there and test him so that he can be led in the way everlasting. Do you feel that confident about grace? In other words, do you believe the gospel to that degree where you could dare to pray, if there's anything in here, Lord, show it to me. We should, why? Because it, should, it won't lead to condemnation. There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. And playing the hiding game will just keep you in the dark forever. Personally, you, not God. You know, when, I, when my ankle broke, <laughs> when my ankle broke, uh, that at night I finally got to emergency room. They just wrapped it up for the night and said, you know, get, we, I got an appointment uh, to go into into hospital and to get it looked at the next day. And so I went in there for what's called a fluoroscopy. Did I pronounce that right? I think so. Fluoroscopy, which is fluoroscopy, is some um, is like a an, an, a video X-ray. So it's not a picture. It's like a live video looking at your bones, right? So I go in there, I don't know what it is, I walk in there, I'm doing what they're telling me, they unwrap me and sit me down and they put my leg up on this cold piece of stainless steel and then this camera comes on and there's my bones and if I move my toes, I see them moving, you know, skeleton. He goes, this is a fluoroscopy and he goes, now, this is gonna hurt. (laughs) I said, well, what what are you gonna do? He said, he grabs my foot (laughs) and he says, he goes, I'm going to recreate the accident. <laughs> I'm, I didn't say it, but I'm thinking, no need to recreate it. I can tell you what happened. I mean, <laughs> I'll write it down. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, what I mean is I'm going to move your, hand, your foot to the left, and I'm going to move to the right. I said, what, why do you need to do that? Can't you see in there right now? He goes, I need to see if there's any space between your ligaments and, and the bone to see if things pulled apart, you know. And Sherry claims she heard a man scream. I don't... <laughs> It hurt. I mean, he tilted this way, that way, and I'm watching the whole time. But he needed to see, and I needed to see and be convinced, you see, that he knows what he's doing. And what he's doing to me is for my good. So when, when this idea that God knows everything about you presses into your conscience, it's because he wants you to see what's in there. Because he loves you. And you are being conformed into the image of his son, the father, is doing this in your life. He wants you to see what needs to be changed and he has the power to change it and there's no shame in the sin in this sense that what? There's no condemnation because Christ paid for that sin. And so we, we walk and live in the gospel. Aslan, I hope, is getting bigger to you. And we are just scratching the surface. So with him, you are never unknown, misunderstood. You are never alone. And whatever he is 
feeling in your heart to your life. Don't run with it. Come to him with it. Bring all your doubts, your questions, your struggles, your confessions to him. He's faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Let's pray.